Good morning, and thank you for the lovely and, and very appropriate songs this morning for what we're going to be studying. And uh, thank you for opening us up in prayer. We're going to just jump right into things. Um, hashtag your abortion. Hashtag shout your abortion is a trending hashtag two women started to encourage others to share their personal stories about their abortion. With it, women posted things like this. I have had two abortions. My, they posted, um, excuse me, let me start that again. With it, women posted things like this. My abortion was in 2010, and the career I've built since then fulfills me. Another wrote this. I had an abortion nine years ago. I don't regret it ever. My abortion was in 07. I didn't want kids then and still don't. My abortion, I've had two abortions in my life. My life is more valuable than a potential life. Articles like, I hate your kids and I'm not sorry are becoming more and more frequent online and in magazines. You may have seen a video this past May of an incident at the Cincinnati Zoo where a three-year-old boy, he was originally reported to before, he climbed or fell into the exhibit of Harambe, the 17-year-old gorilla, who grabbed him from the moat and proceeded to swing that child around like a rag doll. The child was in there for about 10 to 15 minutes while his mother tried to encourage him to be calm. The zoo response team shot the gorilla, and in the days following, CBS ran this article entitled, Outrage, after gorilla killed at Cincinnati Zoo to save child. Outrage. Online petitions and Facebook pages like Justice for Harambe spread. Pictures on Facebook displayed memorials set up for the animal. As you know, the Supreme Court recently defined marriage to be more inclusive, and yet our marriage rates are dropping. In fact, they are at the lowest rates in a century. This is mostly attributed to the fact that our largest living generation, the millennials, are not marrying. They're not interested in getting married. Pew Research found it's not an important life goal for them. One researcher and sociologist put it this way. He said, marriage is, in some ways, in the worst place it's ever been. Now, there are all kinds of reasons given for this. But some of the proposed solutions are interesting. For instance, the beta marriage is a two-year trial marriage, which can be dissolved or formalized at the end without divorce or paperwork required. Millennials want a chance to test the product before they commit to marrying and without having the uh, hassle of divorce. Pew Research found the number of Americans who have always been single and will never marry is at a historic high, partly because they don't have jobs and partly because marriage is becoming less highly regarded. We are living in a society that has little regard for children and little regard for marriage. 
That's how the culture thinks. This morning, we want to ask the question, how should the church think? And in particular, how should Christian women think? When it comes to marriage, when it comes to children, what should be the attitude of a Christian woman? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Titus chapter 2? Titus chapter 2, verse 3, says this, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. All right, this week, we want to target on the phrase, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Okay, older women in the church are to train the younger women in the church to love, to love their husbands and to love their children. All right, now, if you remember, in this book, Paul is giving Titus, the young pastor, a curriculum of sorts that the older women are to be teaching the younger women. Interestingly, he does not say... Teach them, teach the younger women to know how to pray or to read their Bible or to share their faith. Okay, those would have been subjects that would have been crucial to both genders and very likely things that Titus was teaching them. Okay, there are some things that women can learn uh, sitting right alongside the men in the church. But in this particular passage, Paul turns his attention to women and he begins to give them some specific lessons that are crucial to womanhood, things that might not come up in a typical Sunday church service. I want you to listen to how Elizabeth Elliot put it. She said this, it would help younger women to know there are a few listening ears when they don't know what to do with an uncommunicative husband, a 25-pound turkey, or a two-year-old's tantrums. It's doubtful that the Apostle Paul had in mind Bible classes or seminars or books when he spoke of teaching younger women. He meant the simple things, the everyday example, the willingness to take time from one's own concerns, to pray with an anxious mother, to walk with her the way of the cross with its tremendous demands of patience, selflessness, love, loving kindness, and to show her in the ordinariness of Monday through Saturday how to keep a quiet heart. These lessons will come perhaps most convincingly through rocking a baby, doing some mending, cooking a supper, or cleaning a refrigerator. Through such an example, one young woman, single or married, Christian or not, may glimpse the mystery of charity and the glory of womanhood. Here's our first point, and it's a long one. Number one, a critical part of the discipleship process is mature women engaging with and teaching younger women about womanhood in the context of the community of faith. That was a mouthful. But we are to be helping to teach those younger to know how to live out their faith as women. All right. Now, what are we to be teaching? Well, let's take a, a close look at that list. You have got to notice the priority on that list that God places on the home. 
Okay, and this should be no surprise. Those of you that were with us when we did that first course on womanhood, we talked about how God had created the woman to be, we were the nurturers, we were the life givers, we're the more relational of the genders. And if you notice, everything on this list has to do about that, about nurturing, about life bringing, and um, bringing life to our relationships. Okay, it also shows us our first point, or next point, sorry, number two. The scriptures show God places a priority on the family and the home. God places a priority on the family and the home. Now, why is that? Why is the family and the home so important? Let me read you uh, what one journalist for the National Review wrote. He said, growing up in an intact two-parent household gave kids better odds of graduating high school, delaying parenthood until marriage, and boosting earnings throughout their adult lives. The New York Times had an opinion piece, and it had um, included uh, quotes from two sociologists. They said this. Let me tell you that the opinion piece was titled, Families values, Family Values Benefit Children. Family Values Benefit Children. Here's the quote. If we were asked to design a system for making sure that children's basic needs were met, we would probably come up with something quite similar to the two-parent family ideal. All right, now, did you catch that? Because we have secular researchers and writers saying, listen, we can't improve upon this. There are all kinds of statistics and research that show that marriage and family benefit society. Our society doesn't agree on much, but they agree on this. Marriage and family are good for society. Now, the new argument, what we can't agree on, is how do you define family? How do you, find, how do you define family? How do you define marriage? Who gets to define those things? And if you change the definition, do you still experience the societal benefits? Okay, let's um, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We want to ask the question, who gets to define the family? And this was a part of your homework. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 says this. <clears throat> For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Okay, God is the inventor. The family is his invention. All right, and then you notice here, he not only brings it into existence, we're told, he names it. Now, you might remember in, in uh, ancient thought, to name something was to exercise authority over this. And we talked about this when we um, had our womanhood lesson, when we looked at Adam and Eve. He named her. So um, God invented the family, and then he confirms his authority over it by naming it. Here's our next point, number three. God created and named the family. So God named it. That brings us to the question, how do you define it? What makes up a family? Society tells us that's very flexible, very negotiable. <clears throat> right now, there are some new trends with websites like Family by Design, Modamily, and CoParentMatch.com which operate a lot like Match.com, except you, except you get online and you don't look for a romantic match, you look for a parenting partner. 
Okay, it's a lot like a sperm bank, except the other partner wants to be involved with the raising of the child. Because according to the website, it says this. We feel that co-parenting provides more support to the child because it involves two parents that are physically, financially, and emotionally committed. A modern family can provide that as well as a traditional one. Well, can it? What about that? What about the arrangement that you would put together on coparentmatch.com? Is that a family? Well, if you did your homework, the scriptures tell us that a family is a group of people associated with a common father. All right, in Israelite society, the basic family unit was called the father's house. And if you look back at that Ephesians verse, there was a play on words. It said the English word father is translated from the Greek word patir, okay, and family is translated from the Greek word patria. Paternity and family are so closely connected that some translators have suggested that this verse could be translated, and I have this on your paper, I bow my knees before the father from whom all fatherhoods are named. All right, here's the next point in our paper. Fatherhood and family ultimately draw their existence, essence, and character from the fatherhood and family of God. All right, the meaning of family is based on the fatherhood and family of God. I read one medical research site that had been using a very good definition of family, and they are changing that to be individuals living together and eating from a common kitchen. <laughs> New definition. Okay, now, God is the inventor of family, and he defines the essence, their character, and purpose. He's the inventor of marriage. He's the inventor of family. All right, now, that brings up the next question, for what purpose? What's the purpose of family? Why does it exist? Okay, is it just for the betterment of society? Is it just so that you can raise uh, healthy, well-adjusted, and employed children? All right, let's, um, let's take a look. Turn with me to Genesis 1.27. Some, um, some of you may not have to turn to it. You may know it and have it memorized. We, we're there a lot. Genesis 1.27 says... So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, as our authors pointed out, families are made up of people created in the image of God. All right, God is the original father, and earthly families and fatherhoods are, are but copies of the heavenly one. All right, and he goes on to say, the uh, writers went on to say, God created marriage and family to give us symbols to give us images, to give us the language, to help convey to us what it's like to be in relationship with him. Words like concepts, like sonship, adoption, inheritance, family resemblance, love, commitment, fidelity, loyalty, jealousy, headship, unity, intimacy, those are all things from marriage and family that help us to understand um, more of God. And here's our next point. In other words, number five, the family was designed to point us to God and the gospel. Family is more about him than it is about us. 
Okay, it is ultimately about displaying the glory of God. Now, can you see why the enemy is so determined to undermine the family and to destroy the family? Can you see why it is so important that godly women have an affection for the family? Let me ask you, what are you teaching your daughters? What are you teaching the young women around you? Let's look back at Titus 2.4. I want to concentrate on uh, that passage. Titus 2.4 says, And so train the young women to love their husbands and love their children. What does it mean to love our husbands and love our children? Okay, well, for starters, if you did the homework, you saw that the word love has a number of different translations. In the English, we just have one word for love. I love my grandchildren. I love burritos. Same, same word is used. Okay, now, not so with the Greek, in the Greek. In the Greek, you have four primary words for love. Now, I have these written on your paper, and this is review. But the first one is eros. Okay, that's your erotic, romantic, sexual love a word not found in the Bible. All right, then you have storge. That's a kinship, loyalty among family members. That's kind of talking about the natural affection that you would have between relatives. All right, then you have agape, and we've talked a lot about this one. That is your sacrificial, unconditional commitment. It's a deliberate type of love. All right, this is the type of love where you are choosing to act for the benefit and good of another. All right, now this love is supernatural, and this is the love that we are to have for our enemies. All right, now, then the last one is philo. All right, this one, this one means fondness. It means tenderness. It's a friendly affection love. It means to have a special interest in someone or something. All right, it means you, are, you deeply care about someone. Philo does involve emotion and feeling. You are never told to philo your enemies, okay? Now, where agape says, I choose to love you, and in some ways it's very dutiful, with philo, it says, I deeply like you and enjoy and delight in you. Now, if you did your homework, you read that in this Titus 2 verse, it is philo. We are to philo love our husbands and our children. Now, am I saying that you are not to agape love your husbands? Okay, no, not at all. You're told in other places to, um, to agape love everyone. But in this case, the wives are being instructed to love their husbands and their children with philo. Now, I have this on your homework, um, on your handout. Uh, the homework explained that the phrase love your husband is one word in the Greek. It is philandros, and that literally means husband-liker. All right, then you have the word philotechnos, which again, one word literally means child-liker. The older women are to be teaching the younger women to be husband-likers and children-likers. Now, a good translation of this, and I have this on your paper, would be teach the novices to deeply like, enjoy, appreciate, welcome husbands and children. That's what we're to do. As I was preparing for this lesson, I decided to do a little search on what daughters said their feminist mothers taught them. 
And I started to see some repetition. Let me give you some examples of what they were taught. They frequently taught their daughters to go to college, to strive for financial independence, to not get married too young, that you can do anything a boy can do, to date different people, to enjoy being single. And perhaps here's the biggest one, embrace your passions and follow your dreams. Embrace your passions and follow your dreams. I wonder if any of your mothers taught you these things. I wonder if any of your mothers considered themselves to be feminists and taught you these things. Because I know in my generation, <clears throat> we wanted our daughters to know that the sky was the limit. Do you know, I was thinking that when I named my daughter Mackenzie, I thought that sounded presidential. <laughs> I thought, you know, in the off chance you want to be president, you will have the name for it. <laughs> and what was my message? My message was, honey, you can be president. We wanted our daughters to know you can do anything you want to do. Now here's the problem. Somewhere along the way, marriage and a love for children took a real beating. And they were not presented as valuable and honorable. They were things that you pursued when you tired of the other stuff, when you got your fill of the other stuff. And listen, in the world, that makes sense. I get we can understand why the world thinks that way. But listen, it cannot be the way the church thinks. The church is to be husband-likers and children-likers. The authors pointed out that in the case of being a husband-liker, it is a state of being. It is the mindset that values and appreciates men and marriage. Quartz.com, that's a digital magazine, and it ran an article entitled, Americans are having dogs instead of babies. The article included several charts of the decreasing birth rates, and it noted that the drop-off comes exclusively among 15 to 29-year-olds because they are not interested in having babies. The author noted this. It could just be a coincidence that Americans are birthing fewer babies at the same time as they're buying a lot more little dogs. And the same age groups that are foregoing motherhood are leading the small dog charge. Christianity Today ran an article by Kate Shelnut entitled, Jesus Loves the Little Children, But I Don't and how it was 2014 and nothing to be ashamed of. She wrote, it is no longer a given in society that women will have or want children. Oh, dear sister, that's true. It is no longer a given in society that women will want or have children, but that must not describe the church. It must not describe the women of God. Why? Because we take our cues from Jesus. 
And Jesus loved the little children. We are his namesake. And he said, let the little children come to me. We are to be philo, technos, children, likers. We are living in a society that is becoming increasingly hostile towards children while becoming more and more compassionate and tolerant of pets. One day I stumbled on two different articles. One was about the trend of child-free restaurants and child-free zones on airplanes. The other was an article about taking your dog out to eat and how very upscale restaurants are now offering that and that you have departments of health that are changing laws in order to accommodate that. Now, I'm all for having pets. This is not a rant about pets. But we do need to remember that cats and dogs were not created in the image of God. And they have no soul to lose. They have no soul to lose. Can, can you understand why the enemy delights in this American obsession we have with pets? All right, so what do we do? <clears throat> We have a world that's topsy-turvy on this issue, and um, what are we to do about it? Well, we are to put the gospel on display. We're to live it. We're to adorn it. We're to speak it, lip and life. We're to teach the younger women in the body of Christ to be children likers. We're to teach the young women how to love their children. Okay, we are to model it before a watching world. <clears throat> I'd like to get practical Let's get practical. How do we love our children? Now, when I had my children, I didn't have to be taught to have affection for them. I, when I had my kids, I, I loved them in a way that I had never experienced before. I'm going to assume that you are right there with me and that I'm preaching to the choir. But I still had to be taught things about loving them. I had great mentors and disciple, people that discipled me in this. And so that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about a few of the things that I learned along the way. And I certainly would encourage you to talk more about this in your small groups. All right, I'm going to go over these quickly. These are things that people taught me about loving my children. Number one, the importance of teaching them about Jesus. I would love them best by bringing them to Jesus. I had good teachers that taught me the importance of reading them the Word of God and teaching them the Word of God and exposing to them to the people of God just to make everything about their lives um, about Jesus. All right, number two, the importance of prayer. I was able to watch people who taught me this, who taught me how to pray for my children, who taught me how to pray with my children. To teach your children that... that when, whenever there are problems, whenever you need direction, the first thing you do is you, is you pray. And there is something about praying with them and for them that just helps to magnify God in your homes and keep the spotlight on him. All right, number three, the, another thing people taught me about loving my children, the importance of godly discipline. When I had children, I had no idea what I was doing. I thought maybe I did, but somehow your child is never exactly like the ones in the book. And I had a very strong-willed child. And so I was going to people, I was just soaking up anything they could help me and teach me with. And what I found along the way is I, I, I gained wisdom, I gained encouragement. So um, I encourage you in this area. All right, the next thing, and you may not 
need to know this one, but I learned the importance of being engaged and interested. I can remember one of my children was just uh, being a real rascal in Sunday school and Bible study. You know, anytime I was dropping him off at the nursery, he was just giving them such a run for their money. And I, would, I was just very exasperated. And uh, in one class, my girlfriend was in there working, and she was very godly and very wise. And so I said to her, I, I am grasping at straws here. I don't know what to do. I'm trying to be disciplined, and with my discipline, I'm trying to be... Um, regular and consistent with my discipline. And she said, well, he acts like he needs attention. And I was like, what? I'm home with him all day. How can this be? Well, after she said that, I just started to notice kind of the routine that we had created where I was just very preoccupied. I'd gotten very good at tuning them out and giving them the old, uh-huh, yeah, that's nice. And, you know, you keep going about your day. And, and you know, this was, I didn't have cable TV and I didn't have a smartphone to, to, to help to further distract me. And so I, I noticed some things. I started to make some changes. And, and one thing in particular, I looked at the child and thought, okay, you need to learn to sit still you need to learn how to focus. So we decided I would take the last hour of his day and we, I would read to him. And so we went to the library. We got books, bags of books. We'd bring them home. We'd sit down. I didn't do anything else. Uh, had, he was usually in my, you know, we were usually snuggled. Uh, he had a little brother that was sitting on the floor listening to everything we did. But, you know, we'd go through a book and we'd talk and we'd go back and forth. And he had my total attention. Um, I, I have no doubt that God used it to prepare him for school and used it for good. But it brings me to my, my fifth thing, and that is um, I learned the importance of correction and constructive criticism for me. You know, I needed to ask the questions, and then I needed to be ready for what people were going to say back. And I heard some hard things about my ch children over the years. And, you know, I could have got mad. I could have got offended. But I knew that godly women, we receive instruction and correction. And I wanted to be wise. I loved my child. I wanted to do the right thing. So I encourage you to be open to that. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about being a husband-liker. We are to be training the younger women to love their husbands. Now, what specifically does that look like? And how do we teach or learn that? All right, now, in order to better understand that, I want us to go back and get an idea of what this verse was like to those original readers. Now, if you remember, Paul is writing to Titus, the young pastor on the island of Crete. Now, do you remember how we described the people on the island of Crete? We said they were famous for being liars, lazy gluttons, and evil beasts. Now, it is safe to assume that is describing some of the men and husbands that the women in the church were married to. It is very safe to assume that you had new Christian women that were married to these type of men that were married to unlovable men, and they would have needed some instruction on how they were to love. Let me tell you a little bit about Greek society. <clears throat> you did not marry for love. Your marriages were arranged by your father and usually were arranged to benefit him your desires were not likely considered. Greek men were about 30 when they married, and the women were usually between the ages of 14 to 16 years old. You were removed from your home, 
and taken to live with your new husband and the man, a man that you likely only met on the day of your wedding. Your marriage was a legal arrangement basically to supply your husband with children. And yet, notice what Paul teaches. He says, teach them to love their husband. Teach them to be fond of their husbands. Teach them to have tender affection for their husband. Teach them to be friends with their husbands. In Greek society, men kept concubines for sex, mistresses for companionship, and wives for children. So this was radical instruction. Radical. Okay, now, what can we learn from that up to uh, concerning loving our husbands? I want to share with you um, something I came across that kind of fits. M. Gary Newman had been a marriage counselor for years, and he did some extensive research for why men cheat on their wives. And he wrote a book called The Truth About Cheating. He found that a lot of men cheat, but for 92%, it is not primarily about the sex. He wrote this. The majority said that it was an emotional disconnection, specifically a sense of feeling underappreciated, a lack of thoughtful gestures. Men are very emotional beings. They just don't look like that, or they don't seem like that, or they don't tell you that. He says the other woman often makes the man feel better about himself. Men look strong, look powerful and capable, but on the inside, they're insecure like everybody else. They're searching and looking for somebody to build them up and to make them feel valued. All right, now, think about it. He is basically describing men that want to be loved by their wives, and not dutifully, but fondly. And, and in many ways, Paul is saying, hey, wives, you know what that secular author just wrote about? You're to do that. You're to do that. You're to be intentional about it. You are to be older women teaching the younger women how to do this. Now, what I thought I'd do is I'm going to go through a couple of lessons that I had to be taught, that I had to learn about loving my husband, things that uh, I didn't do instinctively. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Number one, admire and appreciate him. Admire and appreciate him. Sometimes we think our husbands don't need it. Sometimes we get lazy, but we need to admire and appreciate him. A repeated complaint of the cheating husband was they never felt appreciated. Listen to what um, Newman said. He said, oftentimes the woman he cheats with at the office is someone who praises him, looks up to him, and compliments his efforts. Okay, understand, Paul is saying, Make sure that you are doing that at home. That is what philo love does. Okay, um, my husband is very handy and very good with things around the house. And what's happened over the years is I, I get to where I take that for granted. You know, I'm lucky if I just shoot him a nice thanks, you know, when he does something. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I need to do better about this. And... Um, and so one day uh, I was having something broke in my bathroom and I was getting ready to scrub it because I didn't want to be humiliated when the plumber came. 
and would see it. And so uh, my husband said, oh, you, here, let me, let me take a look at that first. And I said, okay. So um, he, uh, went into, he went into the bathroom, did, looked at some things. Then he went to Lowe's, and then he came back and did some more stuff. And he came back and said, you're good to go. You don't have to call the plumber. And I thought, okay, this, this is my chance. This is, this is a real chance to, to admire and, and appreciate. And so I was like, well, baby, you just saved us $200. Way, way to go. Way to go. You know, I feel like I got my very own plumber on call and, and kind of just fussed over him a little bit. And, um, and, and it prompted, it made me think of a conversation that I had had with Beth Morgan. Beth Morgan and I are friends with Tracy Gant, who is just very good at this. She's always very adoring of her husband and, and admires him. And she calls him things like handsome and she calls him sweet things. And so, um, and, and I'm like, oh, I need to be more like her. And so I thought I'm gonna make some changes about that. So um, when my husband is out of town, he, he asks me to text him as soon as I am awake. And um, that way he knows that I'm safe and I made it through the night. He's protecting me, he wants, he's asks, he asks me to do this. And so, Usually, I just grab my phone and I type two letters, U, P, send, and, you know, that's, that's all I do. And I was like, that is, that's wrong. I've just got to, I've got to step it up. And so, and so the next time he left town, I, I decided to type, good morning, handsome, heart emoji. And um, do you know, he walked in the door that night and he said, he's smiling. He said, what's all this handsome stuff? <laughs> and I, I, was, I was ashamed. I thought something so simple, just simple admiration and how, and how far it goes. And so anyhow, all right. All right, next one, number two. Respect. We are to respect our husbands. Okay, song made famous, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, made famous by Aretha Franklin, but written by a man. Okay. <laughs> written by a man, originally performed by a man, and it was about a man who looks forward to getting home and finally receiving the respect he deserves from his family. Now, this is something I did not know when I was younger, that men equate love with respect. And if we are not respecting our husbands, then they do not feel loved. Okay? So we are to respect them. Okay, also, apparently in the male version of the song, that um, respect is also used for a euphemism, euphemism for sex. Which brings me to our next point, number three. Love him physically. Now, again, I want you to listen to what Newman says, offers. He says, know that sex does matter. It's one of the key ways your guy expresses his love and feels close to you. So be sure to keep it a priority. All right, now, his book was completely secular. But that is actually very good biblical advice. And we've talked about this. Okay, um, you need to sleep with your husbands. Okay, and the answer to your husband's advances is yes. <laughs> Handsome. <laughs> okay. okay. All right, number four, be a friend. 
Be interested in what he's doing. Be interested in his life. Be a listener. Ask about his day. Find something that you can do together to enjoy. My mother-in-law is my hero in this. She became a NASCAR fan in her 60s. In her 70s, she became an NBA fan. Why? Because her husband likes it. And it's something they can do together. She wanted to be a good friend to my father-in-law. All right, listen to how Newman explains it. He said, in most cases, the man is cheating to fill an emotional void. He feels a connection with the other woman, and sex comes along for the ride. If you're worried about infidelity, listen, focus on making your relationship more loving and connected, not on getting your body just right or mastering new sexual positions. That's great advice. Here's our last point. A true woman focuses on making the relationships with her husband and children more loving and connected. Okay. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we praise you that you are a God that loves. You have shown us love. You've been our example. And Lord, Will you help us to be women that love, women that love our husbands, women that love our children. Help us, whether married or single, to be women that are children-likers and husband-likers so that we might point the watching world to you and the gospel. And Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.